Good afternoon and welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Another not great one. Another bad day for the Toronto Blue Jays. They lose 7-3 to three to the Baltimore Orioles. <sighs> That's all I got for you is a, a deep sigh. It was true to form as of late. Yusei Kikuchi has another rough start. Interim manager John Schneider said after the game that everything is on the table with Kikuchi. Maybe that means skipping a turn, going to the bullpen, getting optioned, all sorts of stuff. Ryan Mountcastle gets to the Blue Jays again. Public enemy number one, somehow somehow surpassing Rugnet Odor as public enemy number one in this Toronto-Baltimore. I guess now it's a rivalry, although the Jays might have to win a game at some point for it to be considered such. And the Jays' bats can't get to pitchers that they should probably get to. Kyle Bradish and Brian Baker combined for six innings with just three earned. And yeah, the back half of Baltimore's bullpen is pretty good, but their starting rotation isn't really, and the Jays have had trouble getting to them. And Kyle Bradish is a guy that on paper, the Jays should do just fine against and have in the past, but a tough one here as well. And Brian Baker's just kind of a guy. Jays leave eight on base. They go one for seven with runners in scoring position. It's a pretty well-told story at this point. I I was pulling some stats. Uh, There was a conversation going on on Blue Jays Twitter before the show started. I pulled some stats looking at the variability of the the Jays offense this year, just like how up and down there. I used OPS as as a proxy. We could use WRC+. We could use whatever. Um, And... It's not too out of line with the couple other teams I compared it to just in terms of ups and downs, but because the highs have been as high as they are when the Jays are the best offense in baseball for weeks at a time, the lows, even a moderate low can feel pretty bad. And when you're not getting it done against the Kyle Bradishes of the world, it can feel pretty rough. The Kikuchi thing also has a trickle-down effect of the Jays had two days off last week in a row because of the rainout and a scheduled off day. And I was not critical, but at least a little perplexed that they had used five bullpen arms on the Friday. As Arden Zwelling told us yesterday, that was because they didn't want too many guys sitting for too long. Well, fast forward and we're four games into this 10-game stretch and the Jays bullpen has thrown 19 and a third relief innings. Over those four games, credit to them, a 140 ERA over those 19 innings and change. It's been the Jays could have been facing some real blowouts here if the if the bullpen even performed at an average level. So good for those guys. But you're looking at a day today where if Alec Manoa can't give you at least six, you probably have no Trent Thornton and Trevor Richards. Zach Pop and Adam Simber are probably in the yellow zone where you'd prefer not to use them. So you've got your your best arms at the back but you're a little thinned out or a little fatigued at least four days after having two days off. We're going to talk a lot about the Yusei Kikuchi thing. We're going to have Chris Black on, do our regular Tuesday, explain it black. We're going to have my pal Eric Kareen on, see what the Raptors reasonableness take is on this Blue Jays team. And of course, uh, later in the show, we'll take your texts to 590-590. We'll tee up tonight's matchup between Alec Manoa and Dean Kramer. But what we have momentarily is a Jays talk plus first. We have an actual Blue Jay coming on the show momentarily to talk. Plus, uh, Mitch White is going to join us in just a minute here. Uh, Mitch White's presence 
on the roster gives the Jays a couple of options with the Kikuchi situation here. Kikuchi threw yesterday, Manoa throw today. Ross Stripling comes off the IL on Wednesday, which is great. They could really use Ross Stripling. And even if they're not going to let Stripling go six, seven innings and a third time through the order, that is the most stability your rotation has outside of Manoa and Gosman. Maybe Mitch White factors into the rotation. I kind of thought he was going back to the bullpen when Ross Stripling was healthy. But you say Kikuchi's performance is what it is. And I don't think a six-man rotation is the solution because then you're looking at even more starting pitching days where they don't have long outings and your bullpen's overtaxed and you lose a bullpen arm. Not only lose a bullpen arm in terms of how many guys you have in your pen at one time, but a Mitch White could be your long man or a Yusei Kikuchi could be an extra your lone lefty in there. So... We'll see how this shakes out. Again, we've got Chris Black a little later. We're going to get into some numbers pretty deep on Alec Manoa, on Jose Barrios, on Yusei Kikuchi. It uh, might not be the most positive of days. And we're going to have Eric Kareen later, who is uh, never positive. We'll see how that goes. But we're going to get the vibes up here in just a moment. Mitch White, the newest Toronto Blue Jay. Well, one of the newest Toronto Blue Jays. Mitch, do I have you? Hey, how's it going? Is this Blake? Yes, it is. How are you, man? Thanks for Very taking cool. the time out. Good. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so I guess let, let's start, you know, at the, the basic question when you've had two starts with the team. What is, what have your first impressions of Toronto been? <laughs> man, I loved it. Um, I was telling a lot of people that first off day was nice. They got a chance to kind of explore the city. Spent a few hours just walking around, roaming. Um it's cool, man. There's just so many cool little pockets, and it's fun. And, and then, obviously, the team and stuff has been great. Everyone's been awesome. Um, and then pitching at home, too, was great because you got to get a feel for the stadium here. And the crowd was – the atmosphere is great, especially on a weekend. Um, so it's been fun. Uh, the crowd giving you the little kind of Bronx cheer after your first uh, strike on Saturday. That nice little, nice little welcome there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I didn't think it would take seven pitches to get one in there, but yeah, we finally figured it out. Um, so that's now it would take me back to August 2nd. And um, I know you had kind of talked openly when you were going up and down with the Dodgers and doing the kind of swingman thing. Um, did you have a sense that, that you could be on the move? And what was your reaction when you found out? You know, in the moment, I kind of figured it would be more of an off season thing. But obviously, you know, I'm not a GM. I don't really try to think about all those stuff, those things, especially with all the moves we made there. Um, but looking back, yeah, it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense um, just with the situation in L.A. and the situation here. Um, so, you know, at, at the end of the day, it, it happened. I wasn't really thinking too far ahead at that point. But, you know, it worked out. Yeah. Um, so who, who's your first call in a situation like that? Are you trying to get on the line with Pete Walker? Are you trying to get on the line with Ross Stripling, uh, one of the other Jays? What, what's your first move there to try to kind of start getting acclimated? Well, honestly, it was just so overwhelming. I didn't really know <laughs> who to call on the Blue Jays side. It was just kind of all the texts and congratulations and the goodbyes and all that were pretty overwhelming. And slowly, obviously, Pete, reached out, um, Schneid's reached out, Ross Atkins reached out, 
And we kind of slowly figured out a picture of how to get me from, I was in Salt Lake at the time with the AAA team, um, get me from Salt Lake to LA to Minnesota and get all settled in. Um, so it was just a kind of a crazy whirlwind a few days. Yeah, it sounds like it for sure. And then the the uncertainty of, you know, I guess, w- would you be in Buffalo? Would you be joining the team right away? Uh, chaotic couple days. Um, so, you, I want to ask you, I had mentioned Stripling there just because I, I had Michael Duarte on after uh, the trade and he, you know, filled us in a little bit about you, the person, you, the pitcher. And he mentioned that he had talked to Ross Stripling about you because Stripling, of course, uh, came over from the Dodgers to the Jays in a deadline deal as well. Uh, I'm sure you've heard them, but just to be sure, the, the Ross Stripling comparisons seem to have come pretty easily for everyone. Yeah, for sure. I think. Ross and I had similar roles with the Dodgers. Obviously, he was starting a little more than I was, but um, I'm happy to take those uh, those comparisons <laughs> with the year he's having and, and the career he's had. Um, he's done a really good job of, you know, being flexible to that role, and now he's earned himself a starting job here, which is awesome to see. When you talk about that flexibility in that role, you look around the league, and it's funny when Ross Stripling entered the the Jays rotation and was so was good enough that it looked like okay, well he's there permanently. Uh, one of the things people started saying is, well, the Jays could use another Ross Stripling type for the bullpen. Like you got to replace the Stripling role, and you look around the league, and there are like half a dozen of you guys who can do it successfully. Um, what what do you think you can take from Stripling in terms of that approach and that ability to go back and forth between roles? And I know you've been doing it for a while, so uh, maybe maybe you've already figured out most of it on your own, but Stripling, a guy who has, a, you know, a couple extra years of, of doing the same. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I never want to say I figured it out, but <laughs> I've gotten comfortable at least with the uncertainty of, yeah, you might be pitching this weekend or you might be in the bullpen or we might need you for two here or whatever. Um, and I've gotten to the point through experience where I'm comfortable with that. And then talking to guys like Ross is, you know, really valuable for fine tuning that process and, and getting comfortable even more in a new place, new city, new team, all that. Um, so he's been great and he was great when I was in LA and still here, it's been an easy transition because of guys like him. So in terms of transition, I, I'd imagine one of the things that you talked about with, with Pete and Schneider and, and um, Ross Atkins and everything is what the Jays see for you, not only, you know, for right now, what your role is, but what they see in you long-term and, and where they want to help you go. I, I know you spoke to uh, Arden Zwelling, the other week about, you know, some of the, the pitch design changes you went through in LA. Um, when you have those initial conversations with someone like a Pete Walker and, and the Blue Jays, um, are you talking about those kind of bigger picture changes right away? Or is it more just, you know, getting comfortable and more, I guess, uh, philosophical or approach changes before you get into things like mechanics and pitch design? Yeah, I'd say we we started we start a little slower. I think right. Pete, my first bullpen, just kind of getting comfortable with him. What he said is, "Don't treat this like a new start. Treat this as a continuation of what you've been doing." And I thought that was great for me um, to not add any extra pressure or any like, "Oh, I got to do something special, do something new." It's more just stick with what I've been doing. And as he gets more comfortable with me, and vice versa we can kind of work from there. And already we Im- implemented a few things in terms of um, 
sequencing and uh, pitch selection, I'd say, in terms of um, what we're throwing, like just the mix to lefties a little bit. We mix that up um, and adding some new little wrinkles. And I think as time goes on, um, as I spend more time here, we'll, we'll definitely add some new, new fun stuff. Hmm. Um, have you noticed much of a difference yet in the way the Blue Jays and the Dodgers or, or just Pete Walker and Mark Pryor uh, approach these things? Or is it more just the kind of, well, they've got fresh eyes on you here, so it's a new perspective? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a new perspective, obviously. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, it, it's still baseball. It's still the same thing. I think the Jays and the Dodgers run their organizations very similarly, um, which is, I think, a, a really good thing, obviously, for the continuation. And then I think both are very successful organizations. Um, so it, it hasn't been so much that. It's more just getting to know people um, and then getting to that point where there's, there's trust on both sides and you can kind of work and get a little wiggle room to, to try new things or figure out what's working well and stick with that and, you know, that kind of thing. So, Mitch, um, I, I know you just said kind of for now you take it a little slower. It's more about sequencing and, and pitch mix and things like that. Longer term, I, I did want to talk to you about um, pitch design and kind of tweaking those things because I know you've talked a little bit about in the past about how you try to blend kind of the different schools, right, uh, of, you know, learning a, a grip from someone or trying something new and then looking at some of the analytics and tech that you have available to you as a major leaguer. Um, what is your process like when you're trying to work on a pitch or, or change a pitch or develop a new pitch? Yeah, well, I mean, for example, the slider that I talked with Arden about was kind of born out of necessity. There was an outing I had last year where I ended up, we were in a tough spot in the pen in L.A., and I ended up trying to close the game. I didn't successfully do it. I left a hanging slider up, and it got banged out of the park. So it was at that point where it was like, all right, well, and it wasn't like it was just that one moment, but that was kind of the tipping point. And it was, hey, we need to work on a new slider, so let's try something that's similar to what you do. You throw, you have a good curveball, you spin the ball well, but for whatever reason, the slider's not very consistent. So I worked with the pitching coaches there, and we kind of modified my slider to get a little more horizontal. It's a little bigger than my old one. And, and so far, it's been good. I, I feel really comfortable with it. Um, so I think the pitch design thing is always a tough question to have because I'm a guy who likes to tinker with my stuff and change a lot of things for better or worse. Hmm. Um, but that was uh, definitely a necessity. That was, you know what, we need another pitch that you can land in the zone and get a little swing and miss. So that's kind of how it went down at the time. So I guess in terms of that tinkering and, you know, tweaking your stuff here and there, I, I would guess that for someone who throws five pitches, that maybe comes a little more natural than someone who throws two or three. Do you, do you think that's probably fair to say? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. It, it also helps as a starter, you get a little more time um, within an outing to work on things. So mm -hmm. it's like as a, out of the pen, it's like if you don't have the curveball going on one day, you need to find something quick because you're probably in there for one, one inning, maybe a little more, um, and you need to be successful. But there's times as a starter where you can kind of tread water and wait for that pitch to come back and feel comfortable that, Maybe it's not there in the first inning, but by the third, fourth, fifth inning, when you're turning the lineup over, it's going to come back. Um, and, yeah, having multiple pitches, multiple options always helps in terms of just, just being able to spin or, or manipulate the ball. 
Um, in, in terms of your first two starts as a Blue Jay, I know you had said some things after the first one about, um, you know, needing to, to tweak the fastball a little bit. How did you feel coming out of the, the second outing and going into a potential third start later this week with, with where those early kind of tweaks are? Yeah, I thought the first outing was definitely a grinder of an outing. Um, and things were a little little funky in terms of my delivery. But after the, the, the second inning or second outing, um, after those first few, you know, spray pitches, uh, we cleaned up some stuff and just talking to Pete mechanically, just smoothing out the delivery a little bit helped a lot. And the heater was a lot cleaner and everything was coming out a lot better holding its plane. So I was definitely happy with the improvement there. Um, longer term, and I know, I know the answer is probably going to be, you know, whatever helps the team win or, or something like that. And I talked to Ross Stripling about the same thing last off season. Um, he, it was a, a great quote. He, he told us on uh, the morning show here, you know, he, he, that after a while he learned that the thing he liked better than starting or relieving was winning. Um, and that'll always stick with me. However, uh, do you have a role that you you know, either prefer or, or do you enter the off season ahead after whatever's asked of you this year with the mentality of, I'd like to be a starter. I'd like to earn a spot. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm definitely, I've definitely come to the place where I'm comfortable with both. Like I said, and at the end of the day, it's, it's just great to help the team um, win and, and whatever that means, whether it's out of the pen or not. Um, is great, but I guess if you were to um, gun to my head, I'd say yeah, I'd, I'd prefer to start. I like I like that role. I like being able to eat innings and, and cover innings for the pen and and do that. Um, but you know what? It's I'm flexible. Like I said. Um, I wanted to uh, wrap this up with a, a little Toronto stuff. I, I know that you are um, half Korean. I know you said that off day in Toronto, you got to explore a little bit. Have you gotten to check out some of? Uh, the Korean community in Toronto yet? Um, you know, there's a there's an area of town called Koreatown. I'm, I'm sure there are, are lots of other outposts as well. Are you looking forward to getting to connect with that part of the city? For sure, yeah. I mean, when I went on my crazy walk, I <laughs> checked out Koreatown a little bit. I didn't I didn't eat there. I Uber eat something back to the hotel when I got back. <laughs> it was, I forget what it was, but it was some Korean food. It was really good. Nice. Um, so I'm excited to explore that and, and check out some good restaurants. I've already talked to Punjin a little bit about um, his favorite Korean restaurant. So hopefully we get a chance to get out there and explore. Yeah, not to doubt you, but I have seen some of the Instagram posts when Manoa and Ryu go out for meals. I don't know if you can keep up, man. <laughs> Those guys look like they, they pack it away a lot. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I- I don't know. I, I could keep up usually, but yeah, those guys are big boys. They can eat a lot of food. Yeah, you've got so the we'll height. See. You've got the height on them, I guess. Uh, Mitch White, uh, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. I, I know you got to get going here for a, a meeting. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me, Blake. I appreciate it. Mitch White, Toronto Blue Jays pitcher. Uh, we'll find out in the coming days if he's Toronto Blue Jays starter or Toronto Blue Jays reliever, or if he's going to continue to uh, swing back and forth in those roles. Uh, once again, Jays lose last night, 7-3. We've got Chris Black and Eric Crean coming up a little later in the show, and we'll take your text to 590-590, of course, as we always do. Uh, we've got a couple in there right now. Uh, we've got one from Tyler from London. Um, why don't the Jays entertain White opening for Kikuchi, get three out of White, three out of Kikuchi, and then you're into the sixth? Um, it's possible. 
my answer with the piggyback strategy is almost always that it's the same toll on your bullpen as carrying six guys, almost six starters almost, because then you can't use Mitch White or Yusei Kikuchi any other day that week um, or, or that time through the rotation. So it can be a little tough. And then it's especially taxing on your bullpen if things don't work out and one of those guys can't get through it. Now, if you're talking about a wild card game or a playoff game, yeah, we're going to have to see that um, from from the Blue Jays. If we play out a scenario where they win the wild card series and I, I mean, let's play out the scenario where they go to the ALCS. There's a stretch of five game days in a row in the ALCS. I don't think you're rolling out five starters and trusting them. Um, so you're going to have to do some creative things like that. Uh, like I said, off the top, John Schneider said post game that everything is on the table with Kikuchi. It's hard to say exactly. Like if he were going once through the order cleanly and then struggling the second time through, I'd say maybe it's an opener situation. If he were dominating the first inning and then struggling, I'd say, okay, bullpen roll would make sense. But where Kikuchi is really struggling is uh, with things that make it hard to change his role because he's not giving you much of anything that would um, that's portable to a different role. But yeah, Tyler, uh, they have to explore everything. Got a question from Paul from Toronto as well. Says, there seems to be a stat or metric for everything in the game. I'm wondering how to quantify a couple of things um, with Vlad's recent hit streak. Uh, it was nice, but most of his hits in those games felt inconsequential uh is there a, a way to look at production basically what paul's asking is uh is there a way to take out garbage time or take out you know padding your stats when the game doesn't matter and yes there is um I'll, i usually turn to fan graphs win probability added metric for this so what that does paul is it takes every game state so if you say you're down five one and the bases are empty and there's two outs in the eighth and you homer, well, how much does that change your chances of winning that game? Did you go from 0.1% to 0.2% because you're still down three with only one out left? Um, so that doesn't help a lot. But if you homer in the bottom of the ninth of a tie game, obviously that swings it a lot. So we can measure that. And Vladimir Guerrero Jr. comes out okay in that metric. Uh, he's 35th in the league, so it's not elite but it's not too bad. Um, and then the the more interesting thing, I think, is that we can look at how important the situations are when a player comes up. And so for leverage, we, we have something called leverage index that measures basically how, how important a spot is that based on the score and the inning and who's on base and things like that. Average is one. Vlad comes up with a 0.9 leverage in an average plate appearance. So Vlad is actually, despite hitting in a prime spot in the order, um, whether because the Jays have been a little more prone to blow out wins where fewer plate appearances matter, or, you know, he gets up in situations like the one you mentioned last night, seven, two and hits a bomb um, or the bottom of the order just hasn't been getting on base enough for him. Vlad below average leverage when he's up normally, that's uh that's not what you hope for with your, primary slugger Aaron judge, for example, comes up with a, an average leverage of about 1.1. So nine to 
higher than an average situation. And he, of course, leads the league in, in addition to everything else, win probability added. So, uh, yes, Paul, it's an imperfect stat, but that's one way we can look at that kind of thing. We can use it for relievers as well as a better measure of, you know, a three-out save against... Uh, with a three-run lead against seven, eight, nine in the order is not nearly as important as a three-out save in a one-run game against four, five, six in the order, or three, four, five. So uh, we do have those tools. We could try to do it. It's a decent guide. And to answer your question, Vlad comes out looking okay by that one. Not elite or anything like that, but 35th is uh, is mostly fine. He's 18th in WRC plus to compare it to. So he's a little better by overall offense than he is by offense that has helped the team win. But that's a pretty narrow difference. And you can't control when you come up. We can't control when we take a break. We're going to do that right now. We're going to talk to Chris Black on the other side, sports producer who is uh, coming to us from the cottage. This guy mailing it in and taking vacation, but still make a timeout for Jay's Talk Plus. On Sports at 590, the fan. More Leafs, more Raptors, more Blue Jays. The Fan Morning Show with JD, Blake, and Alish. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Chris Black. I don't know if he's on an island. I don't know where his cottage is, and I don't want to expose that for the all the diehards, all the Chris Black stands out there who would swarm his cottage and, and ask for autographs or at least recognize his voice like that one person at his coffee shop. Uh, but Chris Black is coming to us from the cottage. Chris, how are you? And thanks for taking the time out from your couple days off, buddy. I can never say no to you or Derek. Uh, or JR, but also, yes, the cottage is awesome, and it sh- it's in Collingwood, between Collingwood and Wasaga Beach. That's as okay. close as the details will get. Okay, so everyone could triangulate that from there and try to figure it out. Um, sorry that you're coming in at 3.30 on a Tuesday instead of 3, by the way. Uh, no, no big deal, but you got bumped for Mitch White. He's so much better looking than me. And now, hey, you have something to talk about with Yusei Kikuchi in that you both got bumped from your normal rotation spot by Mitch White, maybe? That much better looking than me bumps me, but uh, it's understandable. Yeah. Um, So, by the way, before we get into our our usual stuff, how you just wrapped up a a pretty lengthy stretch of tennis coverage for Sportsnet uh, with the National Bank Open. How did all that go? How are you feeling? I don't think Chris can hear me is the issue here. Um, So we will try to reconnect with Chris here. And uh, yeah, we're going to do the, the usual stinger. He'll get his entrance. This is it. He comes in at three 30 and uh, we're all over the place. This is completely unhinged. Um, While we wait for Chris. Oh, there he is. Sorry about that guys. I'm back. Sorry about that. Cottage technical issues. My apologies. There you go. Uh, little news here, and we'll just get your quick take on it, Chris, rapid fire before we get into the, the big stuff. Uh, Bobachet's hitting seventh tonight. Well, I mean, a lot of people, 
that's what a lot of people have been kind of saying. And the numbers, if you're talking about pure productivity, pure whatever you want to measure it by OPS plus, he's been the Jays' seventh best hitter this year. Yeah. So um, it makes sense. Uh, I imagine that's a difficult move to make if you're John Schneider. And I think that that is probably going to be that there would have been a lot of talk that went into that move because you're not just talking about this year. You're talking about a relationship that's going to last a few years. Um, but the performance has kind of merited it. If you don't like it, pitch better, as uh, David Price was fond of saying. Uh, we'll go through the whole lineup uh, a little later in the show. We'll tee up tonight's pitching matchup, Alec Manoa against Dean Kramer. Um, but first, I have some questions, um, and I need them explained, and I need them explained in black. Numbers without context mean nothing. You cannot walk a lot of guys and have poor command. They can differentiate themselves from every other team in baseball if they lean into this. I fully agree that this is a, an advantage for them. Obviously, small sample size. It's alarm bells, red flag, whatever you want to call it. I'd love to see the metrics on that as well. Oh, that slider broke seven inches. Is that good? I don't know. I need you to explain it. Explain it. Explain it. Explain it, Chris Black. All right, so it took us a second to get there, but we've got Chris Black. We're ready for Explain It Black. He's coming to us from the cottage. Um, who, at, Coming off of National Bank Open, where you were producing uh, a ton of great tennis content for Sportsnet, who needs a break more, you or Alec Manoa at the end of this season? <laughs> um, I still feel like, listen, it's not... It's not the like red alert issue for the Blue Jays, but it's like a I don't know a amber alert doesn't feel right because yeah that, don't say that serious things about that but yeah. it's like it's like a yellow light it's like a it's a concern the innings are a concern um, we've talked about it before his performance has been trending in the wrong direction he's still probably I, I still wouldn't call him like I don't view him as their best pitcher I still think. I still think stuff-wise, Gossman is their best. He's got weird BABIP stuff going on. I still view Gossman as like the guy I would trust the most in a big game. And maybe that speaks to how Farmanoa has kind of dropped off a bit. But yeah, the innings are a concern. Yeah. So you tweeted out some numbers on those innings uh, a little earlier. And it's no surprise that Alec Manoa has thrown a lot. Takes the ball every fifth game or so. Um, has gotten deeper into games than pretty much anyone in the rotation. And the concern comes in because he's young, because he hasn't thrown this many innings at pretty much any level. He's just a sophomore. There are guys who are just built to be workhorses and can do this. Um, we're not that far removed from guys throwing like 200 innings being a regular thing instead of something only five or six guys are going to hit uh, in baseball each season or, or maybe only Sandy Alcantara this year. Um, but Chris, what was alarming to you about the number of innings that Manoa has thrown relative to some uh, other precedent? Well, I think the biggest thing is, yeah, the first thing I tweeted out was he's pitched more innings than anyone else his age or younger this year. So that's the first kind of mild concern. Um, so there aren't too many guys his age doing this, uh, handling this type of workload. Um, and the other, the other, the one that kind of, I think a lot of people reacted to and kind of either chuckled or cried about was over the last 10 years, um, the only Jays pitchers that have thrown more innings through their age 24 seasons 
are Drew Hutchison and Aaron Sanchez. Now, the nice thing Two about those who... as precedents is Aaron Sanchez and Drew Hutchison both had very long, successful careers as starters, right? <laughs> Correct. I love sarcasm more than anyone. Um, yeah. So that I I do not think like I always whenever I always like keep those tweets very short and let people go wherever they want with it. This is not me saying I think Alec Manoa is going to have a career that mirrors either of those guys. I think he understands pitching a little bit more. I think his he's really, really smart. I think his body's built for this a little bit better. So that's not what I'm saying. I do. Just, the only thing I'm saying is there are reasons to be concerned uh, when a pitcher this young has this type of workload. But to me, the bigger thing is how this matches up with what we're actually seeing out on the field and when he's been pitching lately. And the the next thing I tweeted was if you look at, and this isn't new, like I, I do think people that pay attention have been seeing this, but his slider hasn't been the crazy sweeping slider that we saw early in the year that he could just shut down guys with either in the zone or out of the zone. It's gone down. The average break on his slider has gone down by about three inches between April and May to July and August. So to me, the fact that what we're seeing while he's pitching is matching kind of, hey, what would happen to a guy with a big workload that isn't used to it? That's probably the part that's concerning to me. Yeah, and that's, you know, I, I was going to ask you, you, you kind of mentioned it there a little bit, that the slider hasn't been breaking as much. It hasn't been getting as much swing and miss as the season's gone on. And one of the things that I've found cool about Manoa's season is that as the season's gone on, his pitch mix has gotten more and more balanced. He's thrown the change up a little more, the fastball a little bit less, and kind of, you know, it not not to say that the ideal is you have four pitches that you throw exactly 25% of the time each so that uh, a hitter never knows what's coming, but it has shifted closer to that. Um, do you see some positive in that, or do you think that's in part a product of not getting as much or not trusting the slider as much lately? I think it's a product of things not working as well. Okay. Um, I, I, I think if you were to ask guys who kind of if you were to ask scouts if you were to ask a joe siddle um his changeup is his fourth best pitch um i don't like i think leaning on that more is about searching for things that might work um and i do think as you mentioned the slider like he used to be able we've talked about this before i view a big measure of i view, view a, a big measure of like do, pitching dominance or how good you can be is if you can throw a pitch in the zone and still get people out with it um, and he he could do that early in the year with his slider, and he, he hasn't been able to do that as much lately. So I think he's searching for things more than he's kind of growing and just becoming a more balanced pitcher, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Um, let's pivot to another one of your Twitter threads, and this one was from the weekend, and I gave you a hard time about it. Uh, I know, I know, Chris. I, I'm bugging you on your vacation to make fun of you for something that I already chirped you about on Twitter. But <laughs> in seriousness, you had you had a big Jose Brios thread about a lot of what's gone wrong for him this year. And, and you and I and Joe Siddle have talked about it a couple times. And, and for a while, it felt like a moving target. Like this was happening and then this was happening. But zoom out and in the macro, it's a lot of fastball issue for Jose Brios. Now, the part that I kind of nudged you about or, or 
chirped you about was the caveats of, well, he hasn't been the worst pitcher in baseball, just among qualified pitchers, et cetera. Um, <laughs> but he's been, you know, wherever we draw the line, wherever we rank him, he's obviously struggled. He has a 561 ERA. He's been nothing close to what the Blue Jays expected. Um, kind of give us your, your takeaway from, because I know sometimes you do these threads and it's not necessarily that, you had a eureka moment and you're explaining it all. Sometimes it's you working through it and trying to figure it out. And I still don't think we have a good explanation for why Jose Brios's fastball is suddenly not one, well, not even suddenly gradually uh, a very ineffective pitch for him. Yeah, it, it's definitely something. Usually these threads, that's what they are. They are me just trying to figure out what's going on. And I don't view, I don't consider I don't think I do figure things out necessarily, um, but I do think I understand things a little bit better. And to me, when I watched, I didn't see the game live. I looked back the next morning and looked at literally every pitch he threw, and the four-seam just jumped out. Um, because when you looked at his pitch chart of those four-seamers as a whole, you're like, oh, he couldn't locate it. He was spraying it around everywhere. Like It looked like a, uh, a Yusei Kikuchi <laughs> fastball spray chart. Um, but with you say it's not intentional when I looked at the film or tape of Brios's fastballs, it was intentional. He was, he was locating away from the strike zone intentionally. And I think the more I looked at what's happened to his four seam fastball, what's, what's how he's been using it, where he's been pitching it. It kind of told a story that kind of what they've realized is that it's just getting hammered. There's no other way to put it. And it, when he when he leaves it in the strike zone, it's getting hammered. Why? I don't think they necessarily know why. The velo is not changing. Um, it kind of moves the same, but it's just when it's in the strike zone, and it's not just this year, over the last kind of year and a half, I guess you'd call it, or two years, because that's short in 2020, it's been an issue for him since 2020, but he's he is a really good pitcher, and I know nobody really wants to hear that right now, but he's such a good pitcher that he's kind of, He's kind of found ways to still be effective at times, and that's why you see these kind of whatever the number is, 11 or 12 quality starts, and you'll have games where he throws his breaking ball 40% of the time or he can work just off his two-seamer. But the problem is a two-seamer doesn't really work against lefties all that well. Um, and if you try to throw two-seamers and change-ups, they kind of both break the same way, and lefties really tee off on that. And if you look back, if you look at his platoon splits, that's kind of where he's having issues. It's lefties are smacking him, but 120 points more than righties, a lot of home runs. And I think the four seam issue is directly tied to that issue as well. So I guess the, where we go from there is Jose Barrios is an old, but he's not a guy who there's a, like, we're, we're not expecting him to add velocity at any point. There hasn't been a big velo drop off. Um, so when you look ahead and not to be doomsday-ish, but, you know, we're not even into the post-ARB part of that extension yet. He's got six years and I think 120 beyond this year. What does this mean for how Jose Brios has to change how he pitches to find effectiveness moving forward? Well, to be honest, I, I don't think there's a way of being successful against lefties without figuring out what's going on with his four-seamer. Um, the only thing that really stood out uh, if you look at kind of what's different kind of this year compared to two, three years ago is his release points dropped by like a, a tick or two. 
uh, not a huge amount. And if you look at tape, if you look at kind of stills from back then, like he's just kind of lower. It's not his arm slot necessarily, but he's just kind of lower. Uh, and whether that's intentional or not, I don't know. Th- these are the things that like, we're going to know 50% of the story, maybe just from looking at numbers and looking at tape without kind of being in the room without like having a direct line to Pete Walker and Matt Bushman and those guys. Um, it seems as if there's a lower arm slot. Now, whether that's intentional, whether that's a shoulder issue, whether that's a lower body issue that's causing him to break down or whether it might just be something they're trying. Um, I like, I think the hope is from my perspective and some people didn't fully understand this when I said it, but like the hope to me is like something's going on with like a knee or something's going on with like his lower body that's not allowing him to really drive, stay upright, be strong. And they'll f- clean up that issue in the offseason and he'll be back to the Jose, the consistent Jose Brios that we've seen for like five, six years. Um, now people are like, wait, you're hoping that he's kind of hurt. And I and I meant more so, yeah, I hope I'm hoping it's not an arm issue. And I'm hoping it's not his him just running out of bullets, right? So right. I hope and there's something that like they the, can kind the of velocity, diagnose in the offseason. The velocity not being down significantly suggests that it's not an arm thing and it's not a bullets thing. It's not that case of earlier in the year when he had dead arm. Um, so yeah, you you can wish that Jose Brios tears his ACL or whatever it is you said um, that I'm not going to verify with context. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not. Yeah. Not reporting that. But. No. So uh, Jose Barrios, they, they don't have any choice really but to keep him in the rotation and, and let him pitch through this, I don't think. You say Kikuchi struggles again yesterday. John Schneider says everything's on the table with Kikuchi. Ross Stripling returns from the IL tomorrow. Mitch White, Jay's talk plus legend, is in the mix somewhere. Have you moved anywhere on the idea of you say Kikuchi finding some success in the bullpen, or even if it's not finding success in the bullpen, just moving him to a spot where the leverage is lower and, you know, he's, he's eating innings in a different scenario. Um, I, I guess what I'm trying to ask is what is, what do you do with this rotation from here? If you are John Schneider, it was the middle portion of what you just said there. Like yeah, I said a lot of stuff. That's it's changed. the JD yeah, Bunkus no. rubbing off on me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's nothing that's changed from like my perspective of this guy could be a more effective reliever than starter. First, there's no track record. And second, like a starter with control issues isn't going to be more effective in the bullpen. I don't think, but I've also reached a point where it's, and I think a lot of people have where it's like, Oh, well we might as well try this because nothing else is really working, uh, at least for an extended point of time. And I think Mitch White has earned and Ross Stripling are just better pitchers right now. Uh, I don't think they'll necessarily stay the case, but I do think I, my guess would be that that's the next step is maybe he can figure something out in long relief that maybe he w- still winds up back in the rotation uh, maybe t- before the end of the year, or even I'm still, whatever happens between now and, September, end of September, like they're going to try and turn him back into a starter come next April. So of course. I don't think just turning him into some type of bulk guy is going to be the long-term solution. So short-term, yeah, maybe maybe they go with that. Um, you do have six starters, and, and I think 2.9 of them you trust. Uh, I'm, I'm taking point one off of Ross Stripling just because we haven't seen him go a third time through an order um, with much uh, leeway just yet. 
let's look ahead though. Let's let's play out a scenario where the next couple weeks and next couple months go well, and they're faced with game three of a wild card series after having used Mano and Gosman. Now that might not even happen because there's only one day off between the last day of the season and the start of the wild card series. So if you don't have a playoff spot locked up, uh, you might have to use those bullets just to get there. But let's be optimists and say they can go Gosman Manoa games one and two. And then there's a game three. Or if you want to be super optimist, they make it to the ALCS and there's that stretch of five days, five game days in a row if all of that started tomorrow, Chris, what would you be doing on the third and or fourth day after Manoa and Gosman? Well, I mean, luckily it isn't going to start tomorrow. Yeah. Because the Jays would not be in a good, Jays would not be in a good position at the moment. Like the rest of the next six weeks are going to reveal themselves. Right. I still think I would trust Jose Barrios more than, more than Ross Stripling and more than Mitch White. Just because I feel like he's the only, he could he's the most likely of those guys to give me six good innings, and I know a lot of people disagree with me on that. And listen, if he doesn't figure things out between now and September, that's going to answer the question for us, anyways. But if you're forcing me to make a gut decision right now, I I would trust Brios to give me the best chance of giving me six innings. And just the the leash would be in a playoff game. The leash would be incredibly short. Yes. And and still, even with the 561 ERA, as you've pointed out, Barrios has 13 quality starts. Or or I forget if it's 13 quality starts or 13 when I looked up, you know, game score of average or above. Um, But he has had stretches. So, yeah, your answer to this, that the playoffs don't start tomorrow and performance changes over the course of the year, absolutely (laughs) correct. We could be having a... Different conversation in a couple weeks. Uh, One more before we let you get back to Cottage Life, Chris. George Springer returned last night. He got two hits leading off and being the designated hitter. He will uh, lead off and be the designated hitter once again tonight. It sounds like that could be the case, at least for a little bit. Springer saying it is what it is. Um, John Schneider saying they're still at least a couple days away from him being able to throw properly. What percentage does George Springer have to be at for it to be enough for this team? Because we've seen kind of, I know he's not the the absolute best hitter on the team, but where the head goes, the body goes has kind of been how this Jays batting order has worked out. What degree of George Springer do you need? A very small percent, like whatever the bare minimum is for him to play. I just... I think he, there's a lot of subjective stuff that's going to come out of my mouth in the next couple of minutes, but he, there's a certain vibe that he rings off, that he kind of gives off compared to the rest of the team. I think they've been there, done that. I think he calms people down. I think he takes a bit of focus away from some of the other guys at the top of that order. Um, so, man, it'd be nice if he was at 100% and could play center field and could be the elite guy that we all kind of have seen and doses but i would take a 60 percent george springer just dh'ing and doing whatever he can even if it's not hitting with for power kind of not really doing everything that we've seen him do but he just makes everything fit and they're just you know we've seen the graphics that uh the blue jays producer doug walton shows a lot where they're just you know they're 30 40 games over 500 with him in the lineup and and a losing team without him so whenever he's whenever he says Skip, put me in. You put him in. 
Yeah, uh, I would agree with you on that one. Um, we're going to talk to Eric Green in a little bit here, and I think he feels differently because he went through the Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan play through injuries and talk it down stretches, but a uh, different sport. There's no designated hitter in basketball. Um, and I guess, Chris, the the one thing that you're a little bit more comfortable with the George Springer DH stuff now than we were maybe a month ago is that the catchers are like, this isn't how you want to clear the DH spot, but neither catcher is particularly begging for more opportunities at the plate uh, of late with the bat. Yeah, exactly. I do think that that's where kind of you and I have spoken about quite a bit over the course of the season where these lineup things that seem like issues at certain points, just kind of sort themselves out, especially with catchers. I think one of the, one of the first hits we did a couple months ago was catchers will not hit all season long. <laughs> uh, they will go through cold stretches. You didn't want to see both go through cold stretches at the same time, but I think Vladdy's ability to play every day at first base, that's kind of, uh, we saw it last year as well, but it's kind of remained consistent. Um, the corner outfielders have shown they can play pretty much every day. Uh, Tapia can mix in there. So I do think it can kind of become Springer's spot for the foreseeable future. So that that certainly helped. Well, uh, you don't really have much choice. If you want George Springer right now, you got to have him in the DH spot. That's just the way it is. Uh, speaking of load management and things like that, Chris Black, get back to your cottage, man. Take some downtime. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for taking the time out. Please tell Eric I say hi, and I'm ready to give him some unreasonable Raptor takes anytime he wants. That's great. We can do, yeah, we'll do a giant roundtable where you get to be the reasonable one for Jays and unreasonable Perfect. for Raptors. He has to be the reasonable one for Raptors and the unreasonable one for Jays, and I'll just, like, wear a referee shirt that day or something. Sold. That's an idea. All right, Chris. Have a good one, man. Enjoy the cottage. Uh, Chris Black, Sportsnet producer. Uh, some great, great, great work by Chris and the whole Sportsnet team during the National Bank Open. Uh, probably the most I've ever, most tennis I've ever watched over one tournament because uh, I'm a good little company boy and because it was really entertaining. Uh, just terrific tournament. Let's take a break. Let's talk to my old pal, Eric Green. From the athletic, uh, you can also keep your texts coming into five ninety five ninety. And yes, Daryl, I see your tweet to Blake Murphy ODC as well. Uh, we'll answer that as well in the back half of Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at five ninety. The fan. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The fan drive time with Ben Ennis and Stephen Brunt. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. When it comes to the Toronto Raptors, our next guest is very reasonable. In fact, him and I made up the Raptors reasonableness. When it comes to the Blue Jays, a little less reasonable. From Raptors reasonableness to Jay's jabroni or something like that. I couldn't think of a better Jay word. That's uh, my pal from The Athletic, Eric Kareen. Eric, how are you? Blake, I'm great. It's it's great to be back. Uh, you know, chopping it up with you, keeping it uh, 
yeah, unreasonable. I, I, I'm not in a good place right now. Yeah, I, uh, you and your dog, Walter, who, uh, as you shared the other day, got into some real trash and threw up everywhere. And uh, <laughs> yeah, not unlike the Toronto Blue Jays of late. Um, no, I, I got to, I, I do want to ask though, we've joked for a long time about how, you know, you obviously covering the Raptors day to day, you have to approach it with a certain sensibility but you don't cover the jays you don't have to write about them or or podcast about them or anything like that you can come at it as a fan so how what is that difference like for you like where do you notice the the differences between air cream sports writer on the raptors and air cream sports fan when it comes to the blue jays well i think I think my brain is still my brain, so I'm going to look at things. And How unfortunate things is that? As, eh? Yeah, I, oh, I know. Yeah, you, you, we both know the uh, the problems with that statement, but it's not like I'm going to go off the deep end if they lose two out of three to a team they should beat in May. Uh, like I, I don't, uh, you know, it's still baseball. I realize baseball is an 162 game marathon. And I'm not going to overreact to a really small sample. So, like, that's just who I am. The difference becomes, you know, I, I can certainly let some takes fly a bit uh, more easily. Certainly in the viewing experience, uh, my wife, uh, when Bo Bichette hit, hit into a double play, uh, in I forgot what inning that was when they had scored two uh, on on Monday night. I, I shouted into my wife's ear when, when he did that. <laughs> and that does it. You can uh, attest to it. You know, I don't scream much during Raptors games. Sometimes the odd, you know, throwing a pen when somebody does something frustrating. But it, it's a lot more of a fan experience, I think. And uh, I don't go rushing to the reasonable take as quickly as I, I try to do for the Raptors, because I think it's, you know, part of our jobs uh, is to sort of provide the proper context. And when, you know, Teoscar Hernandez is striking out and swinging at a slider for the fifth pitch in a row, at, that's out of the zone, and Bo Bichette is hitting into a 6-4-3 in what looked like a, and what was a huge inning, I'm not going to be able to hold it together uh, quite as well as if Fred Van Vliet is, you know, misses his first five threes or something yeah and uh you know the the nice thing about basketball i guess is that you know there's a next play but in baseball there's not that right like the situation's gone bobachette grounded into yeah. that double play the inning's over you have to build all the way back to that fred van vliet misses a three there's a chance that gets tapped out to him for another shot at it um eric by the way i'm not sure if you saw before you came on but bobachette knocked down a seventh in the order tonight uh, the lowest he's ever hit in his career you like to see that kind of meritocracy lineup juggling, or do you lean more toward uh, lineup and role stability when it comes to baseball? Look, they're not playing well enough right now in any phases of the game, I think, to give that sort of stability. Uh, I think the best version of this team has Bo in the middle of things, but we haven't seen... The ba- and maybe it's something we're going to talk about when we talk about the, uh, who's under the most pressure on this team, but we just haven't seen the best version of him pretty much all year long. He had, uh, I think, a very good stretch in May, I want to say, but he's not there. And as, you know, talking about Yusei Kikuchi, John Schneider sa- sort of said last night, we can't 
just wait and hope. We need results right now. So I'm hopeful that Bo Bichette plays his way back up the order. You know, everything being equal, he's batting fourth or fifth or sixth. Uh, I don't think, I think getting him out of, you know, the two holes, given his general approach, made a lot of sense. Um, But as for right now, I think, you know, I, I don't advise panicking, but it's too big of a sample of poor play uh, for them to just say, we're going to keep on trusting our guys and believing in, in the same situation, eventually yielding uh, positive results. Yeah, you got to hope. But yeah, you zoom out and you look at where things were at the start of the season, even if you didn't like Bo hitting in the two hole. And I never really thought that was the, the best spot for his skill set. Uh, anytime a guy who started the year that high in your order and is now hitting seventh, uh, it signals some trouble. So we're going to talk about that pressure on Bo Bichette in just a minute here. Um, but Eric, I wanted to do one more Raptors parallel with you. Not, not to <laughs> overdo it, but I know you expressed some concern on Twitter that George Springer's coming back and he's only able to DH and he's healthy, but not really. And you didn't say as much, but you have Kyle Lowry's loose bodies in mind when you tweet (laughs) that. Do you not? Is is that, that's the reference point? Yeah. I, I mean, it's that and other similar situations. And now the thing that I didn't get into in that, and I have read George, I don't know if George Springer talked to the media before or after the game on Monday night, um, but he basically said it, it is what it is and it's a situation that's gonna, you know, sort of linger to some degree and it will have to be dealt with in the off season. And so my belief is like, if there's, and we sort of saw it through the all-star break when he did have the day off after the all-star break and, you know, skipped the all-star game, which he had qualified for. Um, if it's just not going to get all the way better, then so it goes. They need this guy at whatever degree he can play. And if he's not risking, you know, some serious, serious damage that that puts him at risk for years beyond this one, then okay. You you let him you let him do what he can and that's fine. My concern was there is that version where, you know, another week gets him to that point where he's fully healthy. He can play center field. He can throw and taking these reps at DH, we've seen him grimace after many swings. So if that's the case, are you risking being able to get whatever the closest, uh, whatever 100% of Springer looks like just to get him in the batting lineup, uh, in in the lineup and at DH, where by the way, you're going to have to sit a pretty important part of your lineup uh, to do that. Uh, So I think that based on what what Springer has said, they've considered all the options and him coming back makes sense. But man, like I, I it just bothers me, uh, given that Lowry injury, to know that a guy's in the lineup and, oh, by the way, he's on a throwing program so he can eventually do this. Like, who is to say, and we, def- we both definitely don't know this, that one of these swings can't set back that throwing program and all of a sudden he's a full-time DH for the rest of the year. That's what I'm sort of worried about. And who could blame you? By the way, uh, our pal Arden Zwelling of sportsat.ca and at the letters noting that uh, the Jays plan right now beyond this series is Brios and Gosman in games one and two against the Yankees. So we, we had some questions there about what it looks like after Stripling returns on Wednesday and uh, no real change. Jose Brios and Kevin Gosman. Uh, so Mitch White, 
Jay's Talk Plus Legend. Uh, just <laughs> just hang out for the time being. Uh, we'll see if you get a start on, on the weekend or if you're uh, you're moved to the bullpen at some point. Uh, Eric, so today you had at The Athletic your third annual Raptors pressure index go up, which is a look at who enters the season with the most on the line, whether it's job security, whether it's money in the off season, uh, the following off season, whether it's just kind of a, a prove it and play for your role thing. And you go through and include front office and coach and players. I know it's not the start of the season, but I want to do an abbreviated version of that with the blue Jays with you. I think I know who would be at the top of your blue Jays pressure index, but I'll let you answer that. I think the answer is Jose Barrios. Okay. Um, now, obviously, he's not playing for a contract. He's very secure. Uh, but And this is more from, as much as it's individual, it's certainly the guy, in my mind, they need the most. And if he doesn't turn it around, it's uh, tough for me to envision a scenario that this team can really make things happen. Uh, you've got the two starters ahead of them, Manoa and Gosman, who, you know, there are some concerning signs with both of them. But I think overall you feel pretty good about what they have done and what they can do. And the thing about Barrios is, from a team perspective, now it doesn't matter what you traded for him anymore, but there, that does stick in your mind. You've, you know, no matter what, whether you think it was the right trade or not, you gave up a lot of your prospect capital um, certainly the biggest outlay I think this front office has given up in a trade uh, to acquire this guy who you thought was going to be a staple of the rotation uh, for years to come, enough that you've given him a, a I think it was a seven-year deal. You can correct me if you're wrong. Um, so you've done that, and it's not like you say Kikuchi, who's you know, high points are like so far and so few and far between, you can't even say they're they're there. I know what Barrios's numbers are overall, but he's had six or seven or eight starts where you're like, oh, that's the stuff. You can see the stuff. You can see how it plays. You can see how it works. And this bullpen just isn't good enough to be able to survive, you know, Manoa, Gosman, and then, you know, you're, you're five and dive guys and Stripling and Mitch White. Like, you need another guy who can maybe give you serious innings and serious quality innings. And I think, the uh, you know, given what's going on with Kikuchi, the only guy you can reasonably ask for that is Jose Barrio. So he'd be my number one with Bichette being sort of my my number two. Okay, the other one that I thought might be high... And maybe it's just the time of year because the hands are tied at this point. But you look and Hyunjin Ryu, obviously done for the year, a torn UCL. You can't really do much about that, but that's 20 mil. You say Kikuchi got three years, 36 mil, and we're talking about maybe taking him out of the rotation. Jose Brios got seven years and 120 and change, and you're talking about, well, he's got to figure it out because he's supposed to be, he's your opening day starter and now you don't trust him as a number three. And the Jays just went through a trade deadline that was at least a little bit underwhelming. Where does Ross Atkins rank on your Jays pressure index? Yeah, he's uh, he was the other person, the front office, however you want to determine it uh, or, or however you want to identify them. Uh, that were right up there. I might've just because of the moment, I might've put Vladdy, 
up there, not to say he hasn't had a very good year, but all you have to do is look to New York and see what a superstar <laughs> offensive player having a, like the best season you are capable of having can do for a team. By the way, uh, Aaron so like, Judge would have entered this year probably at the top of an MLB-wide pressure index after turning down that contract extension offer yeah. from the Yankees <laughs> and is now just like... He's, he's done all right. Yeah, he's assaulting the American League record books. It's ridiculous. Yeah, so that that would be the only reason I would put Vladdy in there and while saying, like, has he had the season he's capable of? No. Has he been a very productive player for the Jays? Yes. Uh, but I do think the front office and Ross Atkins uh, are right up there. And as we saw with the Raptors, things are pretty simple when progress is going linea- linea- <laughs> linearly. Uh, like there was what they did after they took over from Alex Anthopoulos, and you knew that was heading to a teardown at some point. And we don't need to you know, talk more about whether that was delayed by a year or two extra or not. But since then, they have gone pretty straight up. Uh, they made the playoffs in the, uh, or you had Vladdy and Bo debut in 2019. So that's the start of sort of this, this uh, core. You make additions through, you know, every offseason, through every uh, trade deadline, from Chapman to Barrios to Ryu to Springer. Like those happen in successive off seasons and deadlines. And in 2020, you get to the playoffs in the eight team uh, version of those playoffs in the shortened season. 2021, you come up with the sixth best record in the American League. And, you know, have there's a good argument that they were probably one of the five best teams in the American League. And thanks to some holes they didn't address during the season or, or before the season didn't make the playoffs. But you still you're trending in the right direction. When that trend stops, that's when you get your decisions and that's when you start to really have to question what you've built. And now you're left with a prospect bank that I don't think, you know, I'm not enough of a prospect head to say this for sure, but from what I've read, you know, you've gone from having one of the best group of prospects to sort of middle of the road. And and once you take out Gabriel Moreno there, and not to say he's untouchable, but like, he is clearly the star of the group. It gets, you know, below average, I would say. So your paths to improving without touching the core of what you've built is a lot trickier. And if this, you know, play does continue and, you know, we're having a sort of very negative conversation (laughs) here and that's what I've been putting out on Twitter. Like I'm still reasonably optimistic this team can get, you know, one of the top two wild card spots and from there who knows what can happen but if they do that and they flame out in the in the four or five game or the three six game or a series i should say or um if they you know they fall out of the playoffs entirely you have to start to question whether Bo bichette is your shortstop of the future you have to really wonder what to do with this rotation and because you know the the payroll is not endless. You did not, you know, I, I thought the moves were fine at the deadline, but they did not make the splash that other teams did. They didn't really even try to keep up with New York and Houston and put out that sort of move to make them, uh, to give them more of a puncher's chance in a series against two teams that are probably better than them. Uh, and 
it becomes really complicated when you go from hope, hope, hope to disappointment. So a lot of season left, but yeah, he immediately after firing a manager and after an inactive off season, you are right on some version of the hot seat uh, if things continue to go south. Sure seems that way. And that's the the pressure index. The one other name I'm curious about just, just more quickly, and it's more about the philosophical of how you build the pressure index. Um, Ross Stripling has been so good for this team in so many different ways that they needed. He's about to become a free agent. When you look at a guy who's having success, but free agency is still ahead, do you come out on that's that's more pressure, that's less pressure, that's, you know, is he middle of the pack, Ross Stripling as as an avatar for anyone in that situation? How do you pressure index a guy like that? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it, it's such a different conversation. Individually, it would be weird if he didn't feel it. Uh, it would, like, I don't think many Jays fans are thinking, Oh, we really need Ross Stripling right now. Now, you know, if 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 they lose tonight, then I'm sure they'll be thinking that uh, tomorrow. But uh, in general, I don't think Jays fans are thinking this is one of the three or four players who is under the most pressure. But I, you know, from sort of the thought experiment that I did from a Raptors perspective uh, at the Athletic today, I would put him pretty high up there just because his payday um, is coming. And, you know, really sliding in there and showing he's more than just the swing guy to show that, like, yeah, he's a number four starter. He's a number five starter. He's somebody you can slide into the rotation. That's a huge difference in in what you're going to get paid at, uh, I don't know how old Stripling is, I think 31 or so. Like, that makes a big difference in a guy's career. So, uh, yeah, on a, taking out the Jays as a team, and really focusing in on what might be going through the players' heads right now, uh, I think he's pretty high up there. It's just not to the same degree that it matters for team performance. All right, Eric, a lighter one uh, before I let you go here, because uh, as you know, Sportsnet is the home of WWE. You can watch Raw (laughs) on Mondays. You can watch SmackDown on Fridays, NXT on Tuesdays, and Monday Night Raw is here in Toronto on Monday. Has the regime change and palace intrigue around WWE off the field peaked or re-peaked your interest at all in the product? And are you going on Monday? I'm not going on Monday. I think it's gotten a bit better. I think the interest has helped. But I think you, like, you know, I think we both agree Kevin Owens is one of our favorite guys. And you look at how quickly they changed the script on him, literally. Mm -hmm. Um, He was sort of being used as comic relief to an extent, and he was really good at that because Kevin Owens is really good at his job. But, you know, they take a few, they they take him off TV a few weeks, uh, put him back on and put him in his sort of, you know, and to quote him, his prize fighter role, his more, you know, aggressive, violent side who still can, you know, speak with the best of them. And they're using some of their resources in a way that I think we've been uh, clamoring for. I, I would say on the women's, the, the other place where you notice that really uh, is the women's side uh, of the, at least on Raw, I would say they're they're doing a better job. Um, 
it gives me hope. Uh, we all know that, you know, we've we've heard that writers often felt like they had an audience of one and Vince McMahon and, and while he was in charge and to open that up a bit and to maybe get a bit more of that realism into the world without, you know, you don't have to have 30 minute bell to bell classics, but be able to tell stories in different ways. Uh, I think I, I'm, I'm encouraged by the early signs, I, I would say. And it's not just the palace intrigue. It, it's some of what's made its way onto the, onto the screen. Well, I'm curious to see where they continue to go and, and you know, watch my Monday Night Raw on Sportsnet every Monday, Friday Night Smackdown on Fridays, uh, WWE here at Scotiabank Arena on Monday. Air Kareen. Thank you so much for taking the time out, man. Uh, I really appreciate it. And all of my fingers crossed for you at 3 p.m. tomorrow that <laughs> the Toronto Raptors schedule includes an off night in New Orleans for you. Yeah, maybe two. Who, who, can, who can say? Yeah, I mean, hey, look, I'm not your boss. You take as many off nights in New Orleans as you want. It doesn't do any. It doesn't affect me any longer uh, like it did back when we, we shared the beat. Um, but have a good one, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Blake. Always fun to talk to you. Eric Green of The Athletic, uh, my old Raptors Reasonableists partner and a big Jays fan, smart Jays fan too. Um, hard to separate. Like he said, his brain is his brain. It's hard to come at sports uh, from one direction and, and then change that direction. Although I will say that up until this year for a while, um, this year obviously doing the fan morning show, I, I had to come at the Toronto Maple Leafs seriously. It was fun to just only occasionally post nonsense about the Leafs and kind of be a fan, but dig in at them uh, a little bit as well. That had to, uh, that had to go away with the fan morning show. Uh, I got to take a break. When we come back, Jay's talk plus continues. We'll tee up tonight's game. We'll take a look at the pitching matchup between Alec Manoa and Dean Kramer. And we will answer your texts to five ninety five ninety including uh big bad man not signing his texts. Uh, if you want your text and your question answered on air, please kindly or not so kindly, at least sign them and use your location. Uh, so I know who I'm talking to. Uh, yes, hindsight is wonderful, anonymous, but so is uh, putting your name on it. Uh, we will take a break. Your texts and teeing up tonight's matchup next on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. Unrivaled insight, analysis, and opinions on all things Blue Jays. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. As that lyric says, too old for teen angst, too young to be washed. Getting there, though. Getting there. Toronto Blue Jays back in action tonight. Game two of this series against Baltimore Orioles. 707, first pitch. Ben Wagner and Arden Swelling on the call for you on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Blair and Barker will have Jay's Talk for you post game. Alec Manoa. 
against Dean Kramer. Before we tee that up and look at the lineups, a couple texts coming in the text line and on Twitter. Um, George from Toronto and then Daryl on Twitter and Ed in Niagara Falls all ask different questions about different members of the coaching staff. Uh, there was a pitching coach question, a hitting coach question, a John Schneider question. All of those are things that are constantly under evaluation. I think if you're a coach in another position and Charlie Montoyo gets fired, you're definitely looking over your shoulder at different changes in the offseason if things don't turn around. So I can't speak to specifically what those job securities look like, what, uh, you know, if if Pete Walker's lack of success with Kikuchi and Barrios versus his all the success he's had with other pitchers, you know, we'd have to sit down with the whole list and really chart it out and measure. Yeah, he they haven't had the same magic touch this year, it doesn't seem like. And then on the hitting side, yeah, the approach sometimes leaves something to be desired. John Schneider, I haven't really noticed a, a huge change other than maybe a little bit more aggression on the base paths. So, yeah, I, I understand the questions, but something that this point in the season, mid-August, this is the group. And you continue to evaluate, but I don't think changes are coming. MP and Scarborough is worried that the Jays better fix or hide Kikuchi or he'll be getting uh, booed a lot. Yeah, well, that's uh, <laughs> something that happens if you don't pitch well. Um, by the way, uh, Adam Simber coming up on fan drive time with Ben Ennis a little later on. They're doing the show today from down at Rogers center. So he grabbed Simber for a bit. And of course, if you missed it, we had Mitch white. I don't know. Mitch white, Adam Simber, which interview do you prefer? Who's to say? Probably Mitch white though. Uh, speaking of booing Rugnet Odor in the lineup for the Orioles uh, tonight. And he has uh, not had much of a sample against Alec Manoa. So we'll go through some of that in just a moment. A few more texts to get through. Uh, I always get confused because Blair and Barker do their trivia thing. And there are also um, giveaways on the station, stuff like that. So people are just texting in random names and, but not everyone gets the question, right? So you just see like a bunch of different names in there and you, without having listened to Blair and Barker today, uh, I don't know what the, the context for some of these is. So it's very funny to see some of the names coming in and maybe I'll do a, a segment where I try to, backward reverse engineer that's the term uh what the blair and barker question was based on the guesses in the text line uh austin and guelph asks if manoa could feed off the clubhouse energy uh and because the energy's been a little bit lower i guess uh maybe it's a little tougher for him it's possible but manoa the book on him has always been he's an energy creator and yeah it works both ways energy is circular but he's uh, he's the energy creator um, for sure. Paul, yes, I, I know there are other changes to the lineup. I'm going to read them out in, in just a little bit here. Um, Dan and Scarborough wonders about Kikuchi and sticky stuff. Yeah, there was a drop-off in the second half of last year, and there were some that thought maybe Kikuchi was one of the people who had been benefiting from it. Uh, it sounds like baseball hasn't been cracking down on it quite as much this year, but if that's the case, we haven't seen it in the the results for 
uh, Kikuchi yet. Jeremy from the Junction asks, did the Jays try to develop starters too long? And maybe some of the bullpen problem would be improved by giving up on a potential starter in the minors and turning them into a reliever sooner. Thomas Hatch being an example. Yeah, Thomas Hatch is a great example of this. He's 28 years old and you're still doing the can he be a starter thing. Um, I think there's probably not a one-size-fits-all with this kind of thing. It depends on their repertoire. It depends on what exactly is or isn't working as a starter. I do think, though, the Jays are tilting that way. We saw this year already, um, before he hit the IL, Josef Zulueta, who is rising up prospect list, had been moved to the bullpen, in part because of workload things, but also maybe to take a look at could he help the team that way. Hayden Yinger, same thing. Working out of the bullpen now. Uh, so, yeah, starting the thing is, is that starting pitchers are always going to be just way more valuable than relievers if they click because of how many innings they pitch and how rare it is to develop a starting pitcher that can, you know, give you five, six innings uh, who you built through your system. So you do want to postpone that as long as possible, but especially if it's someone with bat missing stuff, um, not a deep pitch mix and things like that, you can look at using them out of the bullpen. Now, would Nate Pearson have been any different if they switched him to a bullpen role? Way back when, probably not, given how frequently he's continued to get injured and stuff. Um, it's uh, it's tough. Uh, Maurice from Orangeville wants to know if it's time for the band to strike up a song on the quarter deck. The iceberg seems to have arrived. Nah, you're not you're not playing the song until uh, you're out of a playoff spot. As long as you're in a playoff spot, still can't do the Titanic thing because even though it's been disappointing and the last wild card spot is not where you want to be. Can't do the Titanic song just yet. Daryl in Calgary says, uh, the Jays have been terrible the last 10 games, coinciding with the pickups of Merrifield and Jackie Bradley Jr. The infield chemistry is messed up. Um, there have been some mental lapses and stuff. I, I don't think adding Whit Merrifield and Jackie Bradley Jr. could disrupt much because the guys they re- replace are Bradley Zimmer and Zach Collins. Like, it's not like they took guys out who had been in the mix every day. Um, Santiago Espinal's bat had cooled off dramatically. Jackie Bradley Jr. is barely playing. So um, I don't know that there's much there. It's always a concern to shake up the room a little bit. But Jackie Bradley Jr. is supposed to be a plus room guy, and he, he hasn't played a ton anyway. Whit Merrifield, maybe the, there's something to the infield stuff. Um, but I really, I think that's honestly just Santiago Espinal has been phenomenal defensively. So that's where the difference comes in Tim and Alliston uh, thinks the Jays should trade Bobachette to add multiple pieces to help fill holes that exist um, Tim that's off season question you could certainly take a look at everything under the sun uh, if things go poorly no nothing's safe nothing's assured uh, the rest of the way and into the off season so yeah uh, it's just it's not the time uh, right now. Randy and Stainer says the Jays need to consider Jackie Bradley Jr. starting in Kikuchi's place before his next start. Hey, we'll see how the slider's coming along. We we saw him dusted off uh, a little earlier this year when he, when he had to pitch uh, in Boston. Let's get to the lineups. Enough of your questions. It's my show, not yours. Um, all right. Here's how the Jays will line up tonight against Dean Kramer and the Baltimore Orioles. 
George Springer leads off and is at DH, as we can come to expect. Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Lourdes Gurriel Jr., as Alejandro Kirk slides down to fourth in the lineup. Matt Chapman in the five spot. Tay Oscar down into the sixth spot. And the big change, Bo Bichette hitting seventh in the order for the first time in, I was going to say his career, probably his life. That's followed by Santiago Espinal and Jackie Bradley Jr., who gets the start in center field and is the lone lefty in the lineup. So again, you've got Springer back and leading off. Gurriel taking the three spot. Kirk sliding into the four spot. Teoscar down to six. Bo down to seven. Chapman up to five. So a lot of juggling here. Shake it up. See what you got. That's the group that'll go against Dean Kramer. We teed up Dean Kramer last week. And then you didn't get to see him. That game got rained out. So here's a refresher. He's a 26-year-old righty. He was the Orioles' number nine prospect heading into 2021 and then had just an awful rookie year. It's been a bounce-back season. 369 ERA, 370 fielding independent pitching, uh, expected ERA, the stat cast metric that looks at walks, strikeouts, and quality of contact isn't quite as high on him. Pegs him to be just below a five ERA guy. Um, so either... He has an abnormal ability to time good contact well and kind of pitch above his peripherals, or he's had a little bit of good fortune on where hard hit balls land. Strikes out batters 21% of the time, or sorry, rather, he's in the 21st percentile for strikeout rate, 46th, uh, 42nd percentile for swing and miss rate, and 83rd percentile for walk rate. So it's not a bad baseline there to build from. He doesn't strike out a lot of guys, but he can get some swing and miss and he doesn't walk very many people. That to me screams. That's a guy with a good approach. And those are the type of pitchers who have frustrated the blue Jays. His fastball only comes in about 93 throws it 45% of the time. He'll mix locations a lot is, is maybe the key to his success with that fastball uh, opponents hitting just two Oh two against it and slugging two sixty three. Although again, that's, that's the area where the stack cast metrics are like this dude has been a little bit fortunate, um, but it's a pretty good fastball and the, the locating it all over the place is helpful because he also throws a cutter 31% of the time. It's a little slower than the fastball, but it plays off the fastball very well against right-handed hitters. He's going to hammer it low and away with some consistency. Um, opposing hitters have hit it better with a 292 average and a 416 slugging percentage. Um, but all of the stack cast stuff is, is more or less the same as with his four seamer. Why is that the case? I'm not really sure. Maybe because more guys sit on the cutter and try to adjust to the fastball since it's not elite heat, elite heat. But they do play off each other well. He'll throw a change up to lefties. Against lefties, it's his number two pitch. It's been rocked. But the Jays are not the team to take advantage of this. Um, when you look into how the Jays lefties have done against change ups from righties, Jackie Bradley Jr. has been awful against them. Kevin Biggio has been awful against them. Brian Maltapi has been pretty bad against them. The Jays just aren't built to hammer platoon split guys like that or, or bad platoon pitches like that. No matter. They're the number two team in the league at hitting righties. Um, so it hasn't really materialized in bad platoon splits. Actually, the Jays are kind of a, a reverse split scenario. By the way, Kramer also has a curveball. He doesn't throw it much. Um, he has trouble locating it a little bit. It's his best bet for swing and miss, but it gets hammered 
Um, and that that was his trademark pitch on his way up. So it's been kind of fascinating to see him uh, ditch the curveball altogether. Um, the Jays haven't seen a ton of Kramer. They faced him three times last year, twice in June and once in September. Uh, but again, that was a different version of Kramer. He improved a lot this year. In those three starts, though, Jays scored 13 earned over 10 and a third. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Lourdes Gurriel both homered twice off of him. Danny Jansen homered off of him. Whit Merrifield and George Springer are the only players that don't have a, a great track record against Kramer in a small sample. Merrifield's not playing today, so it's it's not all that relevant. And Springer, again, small sample. You probably bet on him to figure it out. Or he doesn't, and it's not a big deal because it's just one guy against Dean Kramer. But the Jays need everything going right now. They need a big offensive night. Here's how the Orioles are going to line up against Alec Manoa on the other side. Cedric Mullins leads off. Adley Rutschman, Anthony Santander, Ryan Mountcastle, public enemy number one. Uh, Taron Vavra, Rugnet Odor, public enemy number one B. Ramon Urias, Jorge Mateo, and Ryan McKenna rounds it out. As you would expect against Alec Manoa, that's a good number of lefties. Mullins is a lefty. Rutschman's a switch hitter. Vavra's a lefty. Odor is a lefty. The only lefty or switch hitter the Orioles have, oh, Santander is a switch hitter. The only lefty or switch hitter the Orioles have who isn't in the lineup is Brett Phillips, who, uh, you know, is not a, a bat of any sort, really. So they're stacking mostly left. They're stacking a lot of lefties. They go lefty, switch, switch, righty, lefty, lefty. The reason for that is that Alec Manoa has pretty strong platoon splits on the year. Now, Rutschman hasn't had uh, much success against Manoa in a small-ish sample. McKenna, who's hitting ninth, also not a lot of success. Jorge Mateo hitting eighth, not a lot of success against Manoa. Ryan Mountcastle's four for 12 with two home runs against them. Uh, and Anthony Santander has been pretty good against Manoa as well. Big picture, he's faced this roster 83 plate appearances with a 427 expected ERA. So that's the Orioles have been better against Manoa than an average team. Here's something that maybe gives you a little bit more confidence, though. One I dug up because uh, Alec Manoa is pitching on six days rest here. In his career, he's made nine starts with six or more days rest. Opponents have an on-base plus slugging, an OPS of 487 against him when he has this much rest. He's started three times this year with that much rest. An ERA of one. 1.00. Pretty, Man- pretty, pretty, pretty good. I thought that was going to be some mixed up one, uh, Derek, where it just went on and on until I said something. Uh, that'd be a good gimmick one of those uh, on a day you're mad at me. So Manoa with a 1.00 ERA. In three starts this year when he has this much rest for his career, a sub 500 OPS for opponents in these situations. That's really good. Manoa has been awesome, but the ERA and the swinging strike rate have declined month over month. The Jays have been looking for opportunities to get him additional breathers like this. His strikeout and swing and miss stuff has been just average. And it's all the other stuff. That's great. All the contact rate stuff, not walking a lot of guys. Um, He's kind of a, a stat cast king this year in that regard. We talked to Chris Black a little bit earlier about Manoa's slider being less effective as the season's gone on. It's lost about three inches 
of break off of it compared to the start of the year. And in part because of that, his pitch mix has gotten more balanced. He throws the change up more. It's not his best pitch, but against lefties, it generates a lot of weak contact. He's thrown the sinker closer to his fastball rate. That's a ground ball machine. He can get to it in a way that you maybe can't for his fastball, but it's going to be on the ground. And then the slider, still his best pitch, 31% whiff rate, good contact numbers, but that's trended in the wrong direction. So we'll see how he does today. We'll see how he handles that Baltimore lineup. Fangraphs, who, I don't know, the faith that Fangraphs models have in the Blue Jays never ceases to amaze me. Uh, 69.8% chance of winning this one. Uh, based on who's in the lineup and who's pitching. It's a big bet on Manoa and against Dean Kramer. Uh, the Jays are also minus 220 favorites over under set at eight and a half. Feels like a big one. I mean, they all feel like big ones at this point, but if the Jays were to lose tonight, not only are they in the last wild card spot now, Baltimore would only be half a game back of them. It's getting tenuous. Jays in the final wildcard spot, three teams within two games of them. Boston is probably out of it, but they're mathematically, they're not that far out of it. Vibes-wise, they're absolutely out of it, um, but they're not too far off. And things aren't getting easier for the Jays. They've got the Yankees coming up for four after this Baltimore series. We know Barrios and Gosman will start the first two of those. We'll see with the Saturday and Sunday decisions. That'll tell us uh, some stuff about where the Jays' confidence and, and faith is in a couple different starters. John Schneider spoke to media before the game. This quote comes along from Shai Davidi. At this point, we're comfortable with everything he's been doing. So this is uh, Sorry, this is on... Uh, I was misreading something. My apologies. John Schneider said, uh, the best word to describe where we are in the season is urgent. Uh, that is a factor in deliberating what happens on Yusei Kikuchi's next turn in the rotation. We are at the point in the season where definitely every game is important. The best word to describe where we are in the season is urgent. There's a big mix of teams that are vying for playoff spots, which I think is fun and exciting and competitive. You factor in everything. So, yeah, I don't know that Yusei Kikuchi is going to make his next start. We'll see. If Alec Manoa... Doesn't give you a great start today. Uh, I've, you really start to worry maybe um, just about the bullpen being tagged. I, I mentioned earlier that the bullpen's thrown over 19 innings over the last four games, the most of any team over the last four game stretch. Um, remarkable that they posted a 140 ERA and the Jays have still over that many innings and the Jays are still struggling. It's uh, a tough one. It's a tough spot. giving a pause there to, to let it breathe, let it calm down, come back into your body, namaste, all that stuff. It's not all that bad. The Jays are still 61 and 53. They're still in a wild card spot. But as I said yesterday, all of the margin for error is gone. It is just out. You have to start stacking wins to get back into the race for the top wild card spot. 
you have to start stacking wins to get some separation from Baltimore and the other teams for a playoff spot in general. We've mentioned it. The way the playoffs line up, it's not it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a three-game wildcard series. If you don't have that top wildcard spot, it's going to be on the road. If you're not locked into a playoff spot by the time you get to the last week of the season, you're not going to be able to set your rotation up because you're going to be playing guys until that final game, and then you only have one off day to juggle things. So it's a tough spot. This is what you signed up for when you have higher expectations entering the season and when you have as many good players as the Blue Jays have. Again, it's it's a weird spot where sequencing of the season does a lot, as do expectations. People outside of Toronto still seem more optimistic about the Blue Jays than people in Toronto, whether that's model-wise, whether that's talking to national writers or, or um, you know, some of the, the ex-player analysts, if you're checking out MLB Network or national broadcasts and stuff like that. There's still a lot of belief that the Jays' offense can get hot. And I mentioned off the top, I pulled some numbers before the show because some people on Twitter were talking about it and it was, you know, I was looking at the variability in the Jays offense. You look at 10 game splits and their offense has been very up and down. Everyone's offense is pretty up and down. The Jays just have such high highs that it feels when they get to a normal lull level, it feels like a far, far cry from where they were because they spent two and a half months as the best offensive baseball. And that's kind of where the expectation was this year to be in the mix with the Dodgers and the Yankees offensively. Dean Kramer is an opportunity to get that offense going again, not to keep doing the thing where we underestimate an opposing starting pitcher who does some things with a really good approach and mixes his pitches well and locates well. That's all fine and good. Dean Kramer's in the major leagues for a reason. He has a sub four ERA for a reason. The Toronto Blue Jays are supposed to be a good offense. They're juggling up the starting lineup or the the batting order rather significantly as they continue to search for a way to produce runs. It's got to come against a guy like Dean Kramer. It's got to come tomorrow against a guy like Austin Voth because the Yankees are around the corner for four. And I don't know, even if the Yankees are stumbling and and they are, the Orioles are the only good team in baseball now. Um, the way the last little while has gone, the, the Yankees offense other than Aaron judge is completely dried up of late. That's not going to make you feel better, and it's not a guarantee of wins on the weekend. So it's got to happen now. Again, the Jays have juggled up their batting order. Backing up Alec Manoa tonight will be George Springer, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Lourdes Gurriel Jr., Alejandro Kirk, Matt Chapman, Teoscar Hernandez, Bo Bichette, Santiago Espinal, Jackie Bradley Jr. In that order. Springer DHing again. Gurriel gets the three spot. Kirk slides the four. Chapman up to five. Hernandez down to six and Bobachet down to seven, the lowest he's hit as a professional. Let's see if it works. Sometimes shaking it up does. Sometimes laying down the gauntlet that, hey, this is a meritocracy from here. It doesn't matter what you've done last year. It doesn't matter what the expectations are you are for you in the future. This is what you've done. So this is where you hit in the lineup. Could be what the Jays need. It's been a fun show today. I want to thank Chris Black and Eric Green for coming on. Of course, he's not listening, but I want to thank Mitch White for coming on, the first Blue Jay to come on Jay's Talk Plus. Uh, great job by producer JR locking that one down. So thank you to JR and Derek behind the glass as well. Fan drive time's coming up, which will include an interview with Adam Simber. 
Blair and Barker have Jay's talk for you after the game. Ben Wagner and Arden Zwelling on the call for you. 707 first pitch on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Kind of no Jay's talk plus tomorrow because the Jays play at three. We'll have an abbreviated one, 2 to 3 p.m. pregame, and then I'll do postgame as well. Uh, so that's tomorrow on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports F590, the fan.